Hello, it's your storyteller, and uh, welcome back to the reading of 1984 by George Orwell. A couple things. Starting tonight, I will be reading one hour long episodes, one hour, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how long the chapter is. And they will come out, new episodes will come out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then, if I do any bonus stuff, uh, like, I'm going to watch it so you don't have to, where I watch the movies, or any extra information about the book we're reading, or free speech, or anything like that, it'll come out on two Tuesdays. So, and I would like to announce I am working on a Patreon page. Um, I'm trying to get all my tears right and so forth for being a new podcaster. I'm having to work through some stuff. Um, but I will let you know when that launches. And so, yeah, I think that's it. So, back to the book. Alright, so we're in book two, chapter four. Winston looked round the old, the shabby little room above Mrs. Mr. Charrington's shop. Besides the little window, the enormous bed was made up with ragged blankets and a coverless bolster. The old-fashioned clock with the twelve-hour face was ticking away on the mantelpiece. In the corner, on the gate-leg table, the glass paperweight in which he had bought on his last visit gleamed softly out of the half-darkness. In the fender was a battered tin oil stove, saucepan, and two cups provided by Mr. Charrington. Winston lit the burner and set the pan of water to boil. He had brought an envelope full of victory coffee and some saccharine tablets. The clock's hand said 7.20. It was 1920, really. She was coming at 1930. Oh, folly, folly, his heart kept saying. Conscious, gratuitous, suicidal folly. Of all the crimes that a party member could commit, this was the least possible to conceal. Actually, the idea had first floated into his head in the form of a vision of the glass paperweight, mirrored by the surface of the gate-leg table. As he had foreseen, Mr. Charrington had made no difficulty in letting the room. He was obviously glad of the few dollars that it would bring him. Nor did he seem shocked or become offensively knowing when it was made clear that Winston wanted to use the room for the purpose of a love affair. Instead, he looked into the middle dis distance and spoke in generalities so delicate an air as to give the impression that he had become partly invisible. Privacy, he said, was a very valuable thing. Everyone wanted a place where they could be alone occasionally, and when they had such a place, it was only common courtesy and everyone else who knew of it to keep the knowledge to himself. He even seemed seeming almost to fade out of existence when he did so, adding that there were two entries to the house, 
one of them through the backyard, which gave way into an alley. Under the window, someone was singing. Winston peeped out, securing the protection of the muslin curtain. The June sun was still high in the sky, and the sun-filled court below, a monstrous woman, solid as a Norman pillar, was brawning, red arms, and a sacking apron strapped upon her middle, was stumping to and fro between a wash tub and a clothesline, pegging out a series of square white things which Winston recognized as baby diapers. Whenever her mouth was not corked with clothes pegs, she was singing in a powerful country on all. That tune had been haunting London. Hang on. I just lost my words. That tune had been haunting London for weeks past. It was one of the countless similar songs published for the benefit of the proles by a subsection of the music department. The words of those songs were composed without any human intervention whatsoever on an instrument known as a versificator. The woman sang so tunefully as to turn the dreadful rubbish into almost a pleasant sound. You could hear the woman singing and the scrape of her shoes on the flagstones and the cries of children in the street. And somewhere in the far distance, a faint roar of traffic. And yet the room seemed curiously silent. Thanks to the absence of a telescreen. Folly, 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 he thought again. It was inconceivable that they would could frequent this place more than a few weeks without being caught. But the temptation of having a hiding place that was truly their own, indoors and near at hand, had been too much for the both of them. For some time after their visit to the church belfry, it was made, it had been made impossible to arrange a meeting. Working hours had been drastically increased in the anticipation of hate week, it was more than a month distant that the enormous complex preparations that it entailed were throwing extra work into everybody. Finally, both of them managed to secure a free afternoon on the same day. They had agreed to go back to the clearing in the wood. On the evening beforehand, they met briefly in the street. As usual, Winston heartily looked at Julia as they drifted towards one another in the crowd. But from the short glance he gave her, it seemed to him that she was paler than usual. It's all off, she murmured, as soon as she judged it safe to speak. Tomorrow, I mean. What? Tomorrow afternoon. Can't come. Why not? Oh, the usual reason. It started early this time. For a moment, he was violently angry. During the month, he had known her nature of his desire had, for her had changed. At the beginning, there had been little true sensuality in it. Their first lovemaking had been simply an act of the will. But after the second time, it was different. The smell of her hair, the taste of her mouth, the feeling of her skin seemed to have gotten inside him. 
or into the air all around him. She had become a physical necessity, something he had not only wanted, but he felt, and he felt that he had a right to. She had said, when she had said, when she had said that she could not come, he had the feeling that he was, she was cheating him. But just at that moment, the crowd pressed them together, and their hands slightly and accidentally met. She gave the tips of his fingers a quick squeeze that seemed to invite not desire, but in fact affection. It struck him that when one lived with a woman, this particular disappointment must be normal, a reoccurring event, a deep tenderness, such as he had not felt with her before. suddenly took hold of him. He wished they were a married couple of ten years standing. He wished he could walk through the streets with her, just as they are doing now, but openly and without fear, talking trivialities and buying odds and ends for the household. He wished above all that they had some place where they could go and be alone, together, without feeling the obligation to make love every time they met. It was not actually at that moment, but sometime on the following day, that the idea of renting Mr. Charrington's room had occurred to him. When he suggested it to Julia, she agreed with unexpected readiness. Bertha knew it was lunacy, but it was as though they were intentionally stepping nearer to their graves. As he sat waiting on the edge of the bed, he thought of the cellars of the Ministry of Love. It was curious how predestined horror moved in and out of one's consciousness. There it lay, fixed in future times, preceding death as surely as ninety-nine precedes a hundred. One could not avoid it, but one could perhaps postpone it. And yet instead, every now and then, by a conscious, willful act, one had chosen to shorten the interval before it happened. At this moment, there was a quick step on the stairs, and Julia burst into the room. She was carrying a tool bag of, of course, brown canvas, as she sometimes seen carrying to and fro in the ministry. He started, he started forward to take her in his arms, but she disengaged herself rather hurriedly partly because she was still holding the tool bag. Half a second, she said. Just let me, just let me show you what I've brought. Did you bring some of that filthy victory coffee? I thought you would. You can chuck it away again, because we shan't be needing it. Look. And she fell on her knees, threw open the bag, and out tumbled some spanners and a screwdriver that filled the top of it. Underneath were a number of neat paper packets. The first packet she had passed to Winston had a strange, yet vaguely familiar feeling to it. It was filled with some kind of heavy, sand-like stuff, which yielded whenever he touched it. This isn't sugar, he said. Real sugar? Not saccharin? Sugar? And a loaf of bread, proper white bread, not our bloody stuff, and a little pot of jam, and here's a little tin of milk. 
But look, this is the one I'm proudest of. I had to wrap a, wrap a bit of sacking around it because she didn't need to tell him why she had to wrap it up. The smell was already filling the room, a hot, rich smell, which an emanation, an emanation from his early childhood, but which one could, would, did occasionally meet with even now. Blowing down the passageway before the door slammed, or diffusing itself mysteriously into a crowded street, he sniffed for an instant and then lost again. It's coffee, he murmured. Real coffee. Mmm, it's inner party coffee. There's a whole kilo there. How did you manage to get a hold of all of these things? It's inner party stuff. There's nothing those swine don't have. Nothing. But of course, waiters and servants and people pitch things. And look, I even got a little packet of tea as well. Winston had squatted down beside her. He tore a corner of the packet. It's real tea, not blackberry leaves. There's been a lot of tea about lately. They've captured India or something, she said vaguely. But listen, dear, I want you... To turn your back on me for three minutes. Go. Sit on the other side of the bed. Don't go too near the window. And don't turn around until I tell you. Winston gazed abstractly through the muslin curtain. Down in the yard, the red-armed woman was still marching to and fro between the washtub and the line. She took two more pegs out of her mouth and sang deep feeling. She knew the whole driveling song by heart, it seemed. Her voice floated upward in the sweet summer air, very tuneful, charged with a sort of happy melancholy. One had the feeling that she would have been perfectly content of this June evening to have been endless and the supply of clothes inexhaustible to remain there for a thousand years, pegging out diapers and singing rubbish. It struck him as a curious fact that he had never heard a member of the party singing alone and spontaneously. It would have seemed slightly unorthodox, a dangerous eccentricity, like talking to oneself. Perhaps it was only when people were somewhere near the starvation level that they had anything to sing about. You can turn around now, Julia said. He turned around and for a second almost failed to recognize her. What he had actually expected was to see her naked. But she was not naked. The transformation that happened was far more surprising than that. She had painted her face. She must have slipped into some shop in the proletarian quarters and bought herself a complete set of makeup materials. Her lips were deeply reddened, her cheeks rouged, her nose powdered, and there was even something under her eyes to make them brighter. It was uh, not skillfully done, but Winston's standards, standards in such matters were not high. He had never before seen or imagined a woman of the party with cosmetics on her face. 
The improvement in her, of her appearance was startling. With just a few dabs of color and very... In the right places, she had become not only very much prettier, but above all, more feminine. Her short hair and boyish overalls merely added to the effect. As he took her in his arms, a wave of synthetic violets flooded his nostrils. He remembered the half-naked, half-darkness of the basement of the woman's cavernous mouth. It was the same scent that she had used, but at the moment it didn't seem to matter. Scent? Too? he said. Yes, dear, scent too. And do you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to get hold of a real woman's frock from somewhere and wear it instead of these bloody trousers. I'll wear silk, silk stockings and high-heeled shoes, and in this room I'm going to be a woman, not a comrade. They flung their clothes off and climbed into the huge mahogany bed. It was the first time he had stripped himself naked in her presence. Until now, he had been too ashamed of his pale, meager body with varicose veins standing out on his calves and the discolored patch over his ankle. There were no sheets, but the blanket lay, lay on was threadbare and smooth, and the size and the springiness of the bed astonished both of them. I'm sure it could be full of bugs, but who cares, says Julia. One never saw a double bed nowadays except in the homes of the proles. Winston had occasionally slept in one of these in his boyhood, but Julia had never been in one before, so far as she could remember. Presently, they fell asleep for a while. When Winston woke up, the hands of the clock had crept around to nearly nine. He did not stir. Because Julia was sleeping with her head in the crook of his arm. Most of her makeup had been transferred itself to his own face with a bolster, but the light stain of rouge still brought out the beauty of her cheekbone. A yellow ray of sun from the a yellow ray from the sinking sun fell across the foot of the bed and lighted up the fireplace, where the water in the pan was boiling fast. Down the yard the woman had stopped singing, but faint shouts of children floated in from the street. He wondered vaguely whether in the abolished past it could be a normal experience to lay in a bed like this. On the cool of a summer evening, a man and a woman with no clothes on, making love when they choose, talking about, talking of what they choose, not feeling the compulsion to get up, simply lying there and listening to peaceful sounds outside. Surely there could be, there could never have been a time in which this seemed ordinary. Julia woke up and rubbed her eyes and raised herself on her elbows to look at the oil stove. Half the water's boiled away, she said. I'll get up, make some coffee in another moment. We've got an hour. What time do they cut your lights off at your flats? 
Uh, it's 23 at the hostel. But you have got to get in earlier than that. Because... Hi, get out, you filthy brute. She suddenly twisted herself on the bed, seized a shoe from the floor, and sent it hurling into the, with a boyish jerk of her arm. Exactly where... Exactly as, as he had seen her fling the dictionary at Mr. Goldstein that morning during the two minutes' hate. What was that? he said in surprise. Ah, uh, a rat. I saw him stick his beastly nose out of the waist wainscoting. There's a hole down there. I gave him a good fright anyway. Rats, murmured Winston, in this room... They're all over the place, Julia said indifferently, as she lay down. We've even got them in the kitchen at the hostel. Some parts of London are swarming with them. Did you know that they attack children? Yes, they do. In some of the streets, a woman didn't dare leave a baby alone for two minutes. That's when the great, huge brown ones do it. And the nasty thing is that the brutes always... Ah, don't go on, said Winston, his eyes tightly shut. Dearest, you've gone quite pale. What is the matter? Do they make you sick? Of all the horrors in the world, a rat. She pressed herself up against him and wound her limbs around him as though to reassure him with the warmth of her body. He did not reopen his eyes immediately, and for several moments he had a feeling of being back in a nightmare which had recurred to him from time to time throughout his life. It was very much the same. He was standing in front of a wall of darkness, and on the other side there was something endurable, something too dreadful to be faced. In the dream of his deepest feeling was always one of self-deception because he did know, in fact, that what was behind the wall of darkness. With deadly effort, like wrenching a piece out of his own brain, he could have dragged the thing into the open. He always woke up without discovering what it was. But somehow, it was connected to what Julie had been saying when he cut her short. I'm sorry, he said. It's nothing. Don't like rats, that's all. Don't worry, dear. We're going to have the filthy brutes here. I'll stuff the hole with a bit of sacking before we go, and next time I'll bring up some plaster and bung it up properly. Already, the black instant, instant of panic was half forgotten. Feeling ashamed of himself, he sat up against the bed, ha the bed head. Julia got out of bed, pulled on her overalls, and made the coffee. The smell that rose from the saucepan was so powerful and exciting they shut the window lest anybody outside should notice and it had, would become inquisitive. What was even better than the taste of the coffee was this silky texture which had been given by the sugar. A thing Winston had almost forgotten after years of saccharin. With one hand in her pocket and a piece of bread and jam in the other, Julia wandered about the room, glancing indifferently at the bookcase, pointing out the best way to 
of repairing the gate-legged table, plumping herself down on the ragged armchair to see if it was comfortable, and examining the absurd twelve-hour clock on the face on the <clears throat> on the wall with a sort of tolerant amusement. She brought the glass paperweight over to the bed to look at it in a better light. He took it out of, his, out of her hand, fascinated as always by the soft, rainwatery appearance of the glass. What is it, do you think, said Julia? I mean, I don't think it's anything. I don't, I don't think it was put to any use. That's why I like it. It's a little chunk of history that they've forgotten to alter. It's a message from a hundred years ago. If one knew how to read it. And the picture over there, she nodded, at the engraving on the opposite wall. Would that be a hundred years, years old? More. Two hundred, I dare say. One cannot tell. It's impossible to discover the age of anything nowadays. She went over to look at it. Here's where that brute stuck his nose out, he, she said, kicking the wainscoting immediately below the picture. What is this place? I've seen it before. It's a church, or it used, it, at least it used to be. St. Clemens Dane was the name. The fragment of the old of the rhyme that Mr. Charrington had taught him came back into his head. He added, half nostalgically, Orange and lemon say the bells of St. Clemens. To his astonishment, she capped the line. You owe me three farthings, said the bells of St. Martin's. When will you pay me, said the bells of Old Bailey. I can't remember how it goes after that, but anyway, I can remember how it ends. Here comes the candle to light up your bed. Here comes the chopper to chop off your head. It was like the two halves of a countersign. But there must be another line after the bells of Old Bailey. Perhaps it could be dug out of Mr. Charrington's memory, if he were suitably prompted. Who taught you that? He said. My grandfather. He used to say it to me when I was a little girl. He was vaporized when I was eight at any rate. He disappeared. I wonder what a lemon was, she said, inconsequently. I've seen orange. They're kind of a round, yellowish fruit, thick skin. I can remember lemons, Winston said. They were quite common in the fifties. They were so sour they would set your teeth on edge just to smell them. I bet that picture's got bugs behind it, said Julia. I'll take it down and give it a good clean some day. I suppose it's almost time we were leaving. I must start washing this paint off. What a bore. And I'll get the lipstick off your face afterwards. Winston did not get up for a few minutes. The room was darkening, and he turned He turned over towards the light and lay gazing to gosh paperweight. It was in exhaustility, interesting thing. It was the fragment of coral, 
but in the interior of the glass itself. There was such a depth to it, yet it was almost transparent as air. It was as low as though the surface of the glass had been an arch of the sky, enclosing a tiny world with its atmosphere complete. He had the feeling that he could go inside it and that, in fact, he was inside it, along with the mahogany bed and the gate-leg table and the paper and the clock and the steel engraving and the paperweight itself. The paperweight was the room he was in. The quarrel was Julia's life and his own, fixed in a sort of eternity at the heart of the crystal. I just want to remind everyone that I do have dyslexia. So when I'm skipping over... When I'm having a hard time reading, it's because I'm trying to, like, reorient my brain so that the words are right. Um, so, it's not that I am illiterate or that I can't read. It's that I'm reading the words wrong. Um, so, keep that in mind. You are, have, you have a dyslexic storyteller. Thank you. Book Two, Chapter Five. Smee had vanished. A morning came, and he was missing from work. A few thoughtless people commented on his absence. On the next day, nobody mentioned him. On the third day, Winston went, went to the vestibule of the records department to look at the notice board. One of them carried notices on a printed list of members of the chess committee of whom Smee had been one. It looked exactly as it had looked before. Nothing had been crossed out, but it was one name shorter. It was enough. Smee had ceased to exist. He had never existed. The weather was baking hot, and in the labyrinth, Lab Labertine Labertine Ministry, the windowless, air-conditioned rooms kept their normal temperature, but outside the pavement scorched one's feet, and the stench of the tubes at the rush hour was a horror. The preparations for hate week were in full spring, swing. The staves of all the ministries were working overtime, Proce processing meetings, military parades, lectures, waxwork displays, film shows, telescreen programs had all been organized. Stands have been erected, effigies built, slogans coined, songs written, rumors circulated, photographs faked. Julia's unit in the fiction department had taken off the production of novels and was rushing out a series of atrocity pamphlets. Winston, in addition to his regular work, had spent long periods every day going back through the back files of the Times and altering and embellishing news items that were to be quoted in speeches. 
Late at night, when crowds of rowdy proles seemed roam the streets, the town had curiously had taken a curiously febrile air. The rocket bombs crashed oftener than ever, and sometimes in the far distance there were enormous explosions of which no one could explain and about which there were wild rumors. A new tune was to, to be the theme of the song of Hate Week. The Hate Song, it was called, had already been composed and was easy endlessly plugged into the telescreens. It had a savage, barking rhythm, which could not exactly be called music, but res resembled the beating of a drum, roared out by hundreds of voices to the tramp of marching feet. It was terrifying. The proles had taken a fancy to it, and in the midnight streets competed with the still popular It Was Only a Hopeless Fantasy. The parson children played at all hours of the night and day, unbearably, on a comb and a piece of toilet paper. Winston's evenings were fuller than ever. Squads of volunteers organized by parsons were preparing the street for hate week, stitching banners, painting posters, erecting flagstaffs on the roof, and the perilously slinging, slinging wires across the street for the reception of the streamers. Parsons boasted that Victory Mansions alone would display 400 me meters of bunting. He was in his native element and was happy as a lark. The heat and the manual work had given him a pretext for reverting to shorts and an open shirt in the evenings. He was everywhere at once, pushing, pulling, sawing, hammering, improvising, jollying with everyone, with camaraderie, camaraderie exhortions, and giving out from the, every fold of his body what seemed an exhaustively supply of acrid-smelling sweat. Ugh. A new poster had suddenly appeared all over uh, London, had no caption, and it nearly it represented nearly the monst monstrous figure of a Eurasian shoulder, soldier, three or four meters high, striding towards forward with expressionless Mongolian face and enormous boots. From a submachine gun pointed at his hip, from whatever angle you looked at at the poster, the muzzle of a gun was always magnified by foreshortening. It seemed to be pointing straight at you. The thing had been plastered on every blank wall, even outnumbered the portraits of Big Brother. The proles, normally apathetic about the war, were being lashed into one of their periodic frenzies of patriotism as though to harmonize with the general mood and the rocket bombs had been killing larger numbers of people than usual. One fell on a crowded film, uh, crowded film theater in uh, in Sepney, bearing several hundred victims among the ruins. A whole population of the neighborhood turned out for a long trailing funeral, which went on for hours, and in effect, an ignorant 
ignition indignation meeting see what I mean I'm sorry another bomb fell on a piece of waste ground which was used as a playground and the several dozen children were blown to pieces there were further and angry demonstrations Goldstein was burned in effigy. Hundreds of copies of the poster of the Eurasian soldier were torn down and added to the flames, and a number of shops were looted in turmoil. Then a rumor flew around that the spies were directing the rocket bombs by means of wireless waves, and an old couple who were suspected of being for of foreign extraction had their home set on fire and perished of suffocation. In the room over Mr. Charrington's shop, when they could get there, Winston and Julia lay side by side on the strip bed under the open window, naked for the sake of coolness. The rat never came back, but the bugs had multiplied hideously in the heat. It did not seem to matter dirty or clean, the room was paradise. As soon as they arrived, they would sprinkle everything with pepper they had brought on the black market, tear off their clothes, and make love with wedding bodies, then fall asleep and wake up to find that the bugs had rallied and were massing for the counterattack. Four, five, six, seven times they met in the month of June. Winston had dropped his habit of drinking gin at all hours. He had seemed to lost the need for it. He had grown fatter. His varicose ulcer had subsided, leaving only a brown stain on the skin above his ankle. His, his fits of coughing in the early morning had stopped. The process of life had ceased to be intolerable. He had no longer any impulse to make faces at the telescreen or shout curses at the top of his voice. Now they were in a secure hiding place, almost a home. It didn't seem a hardship that they could that they could only meet infrequently or for a couple hours at a time. What mattered that the what mattered was the room over the junk shop could exist. To know that it was there in violet was almost the same as being in it. The room was a world of pocket, of past, where extinct animals could walk. Mr. Charrington thought Winston was another extinct animal. He usually stopped to talk with Mr. Charrington for a few minutes on his way upstairs. The old man seemed seldom or never to go out of the doors, on the other hand, to have almost no customers. He led a ghost-like existence between the tiny dark shop and an even tinier back kitchen where he prepared his meals and which contained, among other things, an unbelievable ancient gramophone with an enormous horn. He seemed glad of the opportunity to talk, wandering among his worthless stock with his long nose and thick spectacles. His bowed shoulders and velvet jacket, he always, he had always vaguely the air of being a collector rather than a tradesman. 
With a sort of faded enthusiasm, he would finger this scrap of rubbish or that, a china bottle stopper, the painted lid of a broken snuff box, a pinchbeck locket containing a strand of some long-dead baby's hair, never asking that Winston should buy it, merely that he should admire it. To talk to him was like listening to the tinkling of a worn-out music box. He had dragged out from the corners of his memory some more fragments of forgotten rhymes. There was one about four-and-twenty blackbirds, and another about a cow with a crumpled horn, and another of the poor of the death of poor Cock Robin. It just occurred to me that you might be interested, he said. He would say with a depreciating smile, little laugh, whenever he produced a new fragment. He never could recall more than a few lines of any old rhyme. Both of them knew, in a way, it was never out of their minds that it was that it was now happening could not last long. There were times when the in fact of impending death seemed palpable as the bed they were laying on. They would cling together in sort of a despairing sensuality, like a damned soul grasping at his last morsel of pleasure when the clock is within five minutes of striking. There were also times they had the illusion not only of safety but of permanence, so long as they were actually in this room. They both felt no harm could come to them. Getting there was difficult and dangerous, but the room itself was a sanctuary. It was as Winston had gazed upon the heart of the paperweight, with the feeling that it would be possible to get inside that glassy world, and once again, it time could be arrested. Often they gave them, themselves up to the daydreams of escape. Their luck would hold indefinitely, and they could carry on their intrigue just like this for the remainder of their natural lives. Where Catherine would die, and by subtle maneuverings, Winston and Julia could succeed in getting married, or they would just commit suicide together, or they would disappear, alter themselves out of rec recognition, learn to speak with proletarian accents, get jobs at factories, and live out their lives undetected in a back street. All of it was nonsense, they both knew. In reality, there was no escape. Even the one plan that was practical, suicide, they had no intention of carrying out. To hang on from day to day, from week to week, spinning out a present that had no future, seemed an unconquerable instinct that one's lungs will always draw the next breath Sorry for the pause. That was actually my leg going to sleep. Just as one's lungs will always draw in the next breath as long as there's air available. Sometimes, too, they talked of engaging in active rebellion against the party. 
but with no notion on how to take the first step, even if the fabulous brotherhood was a reality. There still remained the difficulty of finding one's way into it. He told her of the strange intimacy that existed, or seemed to exist, between himself and O'Brien, and of the impulse he sometimes felt to simply walk into O'Brien's presence, announce that he was an enemy of the party, and demand his help. Curiously enough, this did not strike her as an impossibly rash thing to do. She was used to judging people by their faces, and it seemed natural to her that Winston should believe O'Brien be trustworthy on the strength of a single flash of the eyes. Moreover, she took it for granted that everyone, or nearly everyone, secretly hated the party and would break the rules if he thought it would be safe to do so. But she refused to believe that the widespread, organized op opposition existed or could exist. The tales about Goldstein and his underground army, she said, were simply a lot of rubbish which the party had invented for its own purposes, and which you had to pretend to believe in. Times beyond number, at party rallies, in spontaneous demonstrations, she had shouted at the top of her voice for the execution of people whose names she had never heard and in whose supposed crimes she had not the faintest belief. When public trials were happening, she had taken her place in the detachments from the Youth League who surrounded the courts from morning to night, chanting intervals, death to traitors. During the two minutes hate, she always excelled all the others in shouting insults at Goldstein. Yet she had only the dimmest idea of who Goldstein was and what doctrines he was supposed to represent. She had grown up since the Revolution and was too young to remember the ideological battles of the 50s and the 60s. Such a thing was an, in, was an independent political movement that was outside of her imagination. And in any case, the party was invincible. It would always exist. It would always be the same. You could only rebel against it by secret disobedience, or at most by isolated acts of violence, such as killing someone or blowing someone up. In some ways, she was far more acute than Winston, and far less susceptible to pro party propaganda. Once, when he had happened in some connection to mention the War of Eurasia, she startled him by saying casually, in her opinion, that war was not happening. The rocket bombs, which fell daily on London, were probably fired by the government of Oceania itself, just to keep people frightened. This was an idea that had literally never occurred to him. So also stirred a sort of envy in him by telling him that during the two minutes' hate, her great difficulty was to avoid bursting out laughing. But she was only questioned the teachings of the party when somewhat, some way touched upon her own life. Often, she was ready to accept the official mythology, simply because it was the difference between truth and falsehood that did not seem important to her. She believed, for instance, having learned at school 
the party had invented airplanes. In its own in his own school days, Winston remembered in the late fifties, it was only the helicopter that the party claimed to have invented. A dozen years a dozen years later, when Julia was at school, it was already claiming the airplane. One generation more, it would be claiming the steam engine, and when he told her that airplanes have been in existence since before he was born and long before the revolution, the fact struck her as totally uninteresting. After all, what is the matter who invented airplanes? It was rather more of a shock to him when he discovered that from some chance remark that she did not remember that Oceana, four years ago, had been at war with East Asia and at peace with Eurasia. It was true that she regarded the whole war thing as a sham, but apparently she had not even noticed the name of the enemy had changed. I thought we were always been at war with Eurasia, she said vaguely. It frightened him a little. The invention of, the invention of airplanes dated from long before her birth, but the switching over in the war had only had only happened four years ago, well before she'd grown up. He argued with her for perhaps a quarter of an hour. In the end, he succeeded in forcing her memory back until she dimly recalled that at one time East Asia and not Eurasia had been the enemy. But the issue still struck her as unimportant. Who cares, she said impatiently. There's always one bloody war after another, and one knows the news is all lies anyway. Sometimes he talked to her of the records department and the impungent forgeries he had committed there. Such things did not appear to horrify her. She did not feel the abyss opening beneath her feet at the thought of the lies becoming truths. He told her the story of Jones Aronson and Rutherford and the momentous slip of paper in which he once held between his fingers. It did not make much impression on her. At first, indeed, she failed to grasp the point of the story. Were they friends of yours? she said. No, I never knew them. They were inner party members. Besides, they were far older men than I. They belonged to the old days before the revolution. I barely knew them by sight. Then what is there to worry about? People are being killed off all the time, aren't they? He tried to make her understand. This was an exceptional case. This wasn't a question of somebody being killed. Do you remember the, that the past, starting from yesterday, had already been abolished, and if it survives anywhere, it's in a few solid objects with no words attached to them, like that lump of glass over there. Already we, we know almost literally nothing about the revolution and the years before the revolution. Every book has been destroyed or falsified. Every picture has been repainted, every book rewritten, every statue, street, and building has been renamed, every date has been altered, and that the process is continuing day by day, minute by minute. 
History has stopped. Nothing exists except the endless present in the, which the party is always right. I know, of course, that the past is falsified, but it would never be possible for me to prove it. Even when I, even when I did the falsification myself, after the thing is done, no evidence ever remains. The only evidence is inside my own mind, and I don't know with any certainty that any other human being shares my memory. Just in that one instance in my whole life did I possess actual concrete evidence after the event, years after. And what was the good in that? It was no good because I threw it away a few minutes later. But the same thing happened today. I should keep it. Well, I wouldn't, said Julia. I'm quite ready to take risks, but only for something worthwhile, not for an old bit of newspaper. What could you have done with it, even if you had kept it? Not much, perhaps. But it was evidence. It might have been planted a few doubts here and there, and supposing that I dare show it to anybody. I don't imagine that we can alter anything in our own lifetime, but one can imagine little knots of resistance springing up here and there, small groups of people banding together and gradually growing, and even leaving a few records behind, so that the next generation can carry on where we left off. I'm not interested in the next generation, dear. I'm only interested in us. You're only a, a rebel from the waist down, he told her. She thought this was brilliantly witty and flung her arms around him in delight. The ramifications of, in the ramifications of party doctrine, she had not the faintest interest. Whenever he began to talk about the principles of insock, double think, mutability of the past, and the denial of object reality, and the use of new-speak new words. She had become bored and confused, and said that she never paid attention to any of that rubbish. And one knew it was all rubbish, so why let someone be worried about it? She knew when to cheer and when to boo, and that was all one needed. If she had persisted in talking about such, such subjects, she had a disconcerting habit of falling asleep. She was one of those people who could sleep at any hour in any, in any position. Talking to her, he realized how easy it was to be present in the appearance of orthodoxy while having no grasp of what orthodoxy meant. In a way, the worldview of the party imposed itself most successfully on people incapable of understanding it. It could be made to accept even the most flagrant violations of reality because no one fully grasped the enormity of what demanded of them, and, not, and they were not sufficiently interested in public events. Oh, that, sorry. That was my other name.
By lack of understanding, they remained sane. They simply swallowed everything, and what they swallowed didn't uh, what they swallowed did them no harm because it was left no residue behind. It was like a grain of corn that will pass undigested through the body of a bird. Alright, that's the end of the reading for tonight. We will be back on Monday with another reading of 1984, George Orwell.